Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Joe Loveridge. Joe is the director and owner of Albany Funerals, an independent funeral business based over in Kent. Joe, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the air with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast, Joe, as I say, is to get together a variety of different perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. I think to me, it means to inspire others and to inspire the team that you're leading and for them to trust in you. I think that's probably the main the main thoughts that I would have on that. Okay, so if we think about um, that being your view on leadership, would you describe your own leadership style as being based very much on those principles? I do try. <laughs> that, that's my goal. Um, I think that if you, if you try to achieve that, you may not always get there, but I think a lot of the time you, you will do. Exactly right. And um, being inspiring um, as a leader is um, hugely important. Um, are there any examples maybe of people that you've worked for or maybe leadership figures throughout history you've maybe been an inspiration to you and maybe rubbed off on your own leadership style? Uh, probably very many, I would say, and sometimes in 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 small ways, sometimes in, in big ways. Um, I'm not currently massively inspired by the leadership we have at the moment in this country through this virus, but I'm trying to to provide something very stable, um, open and honest with, with my staff so that we can navigate through these times mm, all so. together safely um, with everyone trusting in me and trusting my decisions. Yeah, you certainly make um, a very good point there about openness. And if we think mm. about um, how the UK government, for example, has been criticised for its response throughout this crisis, there are quite a lot of people out there who are saying things like, oh, well, maybe we should have gone into lockdown earlier, for instance. Mm. Um, if you look at the Italian lockdown, they began mm. on March the 9th and we didn't follow suit until the 23rd. So really, yeah. before we imposed much stricter measures over here, we were taking a little bit more of a laissez-faire approach, I think it's fair to say, of just Absolutely. kind of sitting back and kind of seeing what happens. Um, yeah. Taking that away from politics and away from times of crisis uh, then, Joe, would you say that as a business leader, you tend to be more sort of proactive? You dive in on issues straight away as they arise and get on top Absolutely. of difficulties? I, I try to always be one step ahead um, and just prepared for obviously no one could have foreseen that we'd be sitting here today um, talking while we're in lockdown um, mm. but um, I try to stay ahead of the game so that um, the people that rely on me for you know I've, I run a small company so it's not like I'm a you know I'm um, anything any big cheese in that that respect but I take very seriously running my small team making sure that they all know that I've I've looked ahead and I can try and find out what's coming and that has come in useful in in these times too and in normal times and likewise during this time as um, we 
to continue through this uh, current situation, businesses still having to be proactive in planning for when it is eventually going to recommence operations for those especially who have had to cease operating for the moment. They can't just sit and wait for government guidance to change and then think, right, okay, we we have to to adapt. As businesses, we have to adapt to the current situation. Obviously, my business is not one of those that's had to be shut down, Mm. but we've had huge um, changes in how we operate. So we've had to adapt on a daily basis to um, new events, new guidelines and things like that. So I have to make sure, particularly now that I'm ahead of the game, always looking ahead, always planning. Mm. It's a balance between proactivity and reactivity in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you yeah don't want, absolutely. You don't want to be too reactive, so essentially dictated to entirely by changing guidelines, changing circumstances. But I think yeah. when things do change, um, businesses also have to be able to sort of change um, tact a little bit um, when um, things do um, essentially alter and they have to be able to sort absolutely. of take measured decisions very quickly. And, and I, feel, I feel there's a real sense that we won't ever go back to exactly how things were. So every business will have to adapt and change to the, to the new circumstances, at least in the short term, I would imagine. And considering that, of course, you are working very much in the funeral business, is it going to affect yes. the way that you operate going forward this situation? Yes, I think so. I really do. Um, obviously, it's made huge changes at the moment. Um, we're very, very restricted on what we can do, quite mm. rightly so. Um, and we're sort of, we've got to a stage now where we're kind of um, organised and starting to work well with our new um, ways of working. But I've been asked by other journalists, what, what has changed in your in your job and how you do your job? And I've, I've had to, to reply that absolutely everything has changed how we do our job. So... I think going forward that there will be some of those changes will probably stay. Mm. And it's often said, isn't it, that these are very much unprecedented times that we are living in at the moment. Um, Has there ever been a time in your career when you've had to take steps and decisions like this? Um, No, (laughs) I can't say I have, no. I mean, we often, working in the funeral business, we often get very difficult situations but never on on this sort of scale, you know, it would be um, sometimes you get very tragic accidents or tragic, um, I'm sure that um, funeral directors living near where there's been um, some kind of incident or of terrorism or something like that, they may have lived a similar kind of trauma, but not every day, not for weeks and weeks and months and months. And I think that, I don't think any of us have ever had to adapt to this sort of situation before. Mm. I can certainly imagine that starting out the business 10 years ago that you might have anticipated encountering some difficulties, but nothing on this sort of scale. Absolutely, yes. Mm. I mean, funeral directors always do have some PPE because we do have infectious Mm -hmm. diseases to deal with um, for people that have died in that way, but, you know, not, not on this kind of scale. And for every sort of shortcoming that the government is um, encountering during this time, they are constantly um, putting out this message that they are going to learn from the experience of this pandemic. Do you think that it's actually possible to be a good leader without maybe getting a few things wrong and learning from mistakes? 
I think you, you in any, um, whether you're a leader or not in, in life, you, you learn from your mistakes. But I think the really important thing to, to think about is, are you able to learn from your mistakes? Do you stop and, and consider, you know, what, what you've done and, and learn from them? And I, I just really hope that that is the case. And from all your experience as well, um, over the last 10 years, if you could speak to yourself um, a decade ago, Joe, um, and address the younger you, is there anything that you would maybe tell yourself to do differently going forward? Um, that's a good question. Uh, probably lots of little things. Um, nothing, nothing major. I feel happy with how... I've grown the business and I'm happy with the staff that I've chosen. I've got a wonderful team around me, absolutely brilliant, and they're working tirelessly at the moment, no complaints, absolutely brilliant people. Um, So I have made a few mistakes with staff along the way, but now um, really have got a fantastic team. And, you know, you're bound to make mistakes. I think I'd probably tell myself... um, if you've got a gut feeling that someone's not right, don't keep giving them chances. Just mm. just listen because you're probably right. So that would probably be the main thing. Absolutely. And if we were to give some advice today to uh, some of those listeners who may be part of the younger generation and aspiring leaders in future, for example, it would be a really, really good bit of advice to give them, wouldn't it, that to very carefully choose the people um, that they have around Absolutely. them, especially when it comes to not just people that they hire, but also their mentors as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, a small business or a large business is the people that work there. And if you treasure your, you treasure your workforce and you look after them, um, they will be loyal to you as well. And I think it's funny, again, I'm coming back to this situation, but we've seen in the media those companies that have behaved really well, who have looked after their workers, some of some people, you know, paying their staff out of their own pockets, and other companies not really. Um, I suppose we could say being disappointing in that they haven't looked after their staff. So, I think staff is is everything. Your team is everything. So, absolutely, advice to future generations: really, really choose carefully who you're going to work with and treat them well. Exactly right. And uh, we've talked about as well um, an awful lot today about um, not just leadership in business, but also the leadership that we've seen throughout this crisis from the government level. And if you could, Joe, become the Prime Minister just for a day, what would be the one big thing that you would try and change? Oh, gosh. Sorry, could you just say that last? What would be the one thing that I... That that you would try and change? Oh, that I would try and change. I think just being more open... Mm-hmm. I think every government makes mistakes, you know, whatever side of the fence you're on, you know, you can't always get it right. But as we were saying before, actually having the ability to set, to, to speak openly and honestly to the people and not just assuming that people can't understand and won't, won't take in. I think I would like more honesty and openness. In, in what they're trying to do. I think I, w- I would love to be able to trust more what's happening. And I think you can only achieve that with openness by just saying, yes, we didn't get it right. We didn't get everything right, but we're, we're working on it now. 
and we're determined to 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 um, turn things around. I think that's that's the important thing. I think there's been some recognition of that lack of openness, certainly in the recent weeks with the, um, of course, daily briefings from Downing Street being commenced. And I think it may well be beneficial in future once we do see out the pandemic to maybe start kind of doing this more regularly, isn't it? Just keeping the public up to date on some of some, some of the big issues of the day, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. It's certainly been very nice seeing Parliament um, a lot calmer and without all the jeering and shouting. I think that has been, you can actually hear what people are saying. Mm. Um, the, the MPs are calmer, putting good points across. So perhaps that's something that we can take forward as well. Absolutely. And if we do think about the uh, the future, uh, Joe, uh, before we do uh, wrap things up on the programme today, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Albany and also what yeah. you hope to achieve in that time as well? Well, it's going to be very different to what I had planned. Um, and it's very difficult to say for sure how the next 12 months are going to, to go because it, obviously it's very dependent on how we deal with this virus. But I, I would expect in the short term it will be just trying to carry on helping people that have lost people to the virus and not to the virus in, in the best way we can whilst keeping all my team safe and well. So we'll carry on doing that and looking to the future. We're hoping to, um, I've always wanted to open a green burial ground mm. and have a beautiful venue to hold funerals in. So that, that, that was my project before this happened, but I think that's going to be put on hold because Although many people think the funeral industry will be making loads of money at the moment, it's not really the case. We've, mm. We're also taking a hit financially. So I think big projects will be on hold. But I think the main thing is to focus getting through this, making sure everyone comes out of it fit and well. Um, and they get a bit of rest afterwards because it's been a long a long month or so and hopefully we'll get back into some kind of normality very gradually. Let's, cer- let's certainly hope so and um, what I think uh, would be fantastic for the listeners who have tuned in uh, today Joe is um, if perhaps once we start to emerge from the pandemic and we start seeing the impact on the funeral industry we can maybe have you back on the air to talk about some of those projects as they start to relaunch and just catch up on how the uh, the business is doing but for now yeah, I have to was- say um, I've really, really enjoyed having you on today's programme. It's been a thoroughly insightful and also a really enjoyable experience. Thank you very much for me as well. Thank you for having me on the programme. It's been an absolute pleasure, Joe, and we certainly love to have you on the air again. Thanks, Scott. Thanks a lot. That was Joe Loveridge, director and owner of Albany Funerals. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.